and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to share my new book. It's called Shift Your Mind. It came out last month and really excited about it and getting some awesome feedback from listeners like you and strangers and and all kinds of different people, friends and family who appreciate the book. And it's just been really heartwarming and a pretty incredible experience to hear about how people are shifting their minds. So the book is called Shift Your Mind, Nine Mental Shifts to Help You Thrive in Both Preparation and Performance. And really the thesis of the book came about from a lot of these conversations with intentional performers on this podcast, a lot of my clients observing some of the greatest performers in the world and putting together this framework about your mindset for preparation and performance. So if you're interested in the book, head on over to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any independent bookstore, they should all have it. And you can also go to strongskills.co slash book. That's strongskills.co slash book. And that will direct you to where the book is available for sale. So appreciate all of you that have cracked it open and have started to shift your mind and can't wait to hear about how others are looking at shifting their mind in their preparation and their performance as well. And for those of you that don't know, I work as a mental performance coach and an executive coach when I'm not recording this podcast or writing a book. Uh, And I love what I do for a living. And I've gotten to work with incredible clients inside sports, outside of sports in the corporate world. And one of the people that I've followed and enjoyed learning from is today's guest on the podcast, Claude Silver is an amazing human being first and foremost, and that's going to come across in this conversation. She's warm, she's thoughtful, she's caring, and super, super intelligent. And she also is a servant leader, and she says that she leads through her heart. So she's a chief heart officer at VaynerMedia, and what that means is that she is actually one of the premier resources for heart-based leadership because... She created it and executed it and taught it and lived it. And she knows how to develop others with these skills so they can pull out their inner heart leadership and soar. We're going to talk about strong skills, which is my company, and how that is a better phrase, name, term, whatever you want to call it, than soft skills. Because Claude and I both are obsessed with these inner skills that really help people 
thrive and help them unlock their potential. So as I mentioned, she's VaynerMedia's inaugural Chief Heart Officer, and she really does bring the heart to the agency by way of emotional optimism and emotional intelligence. If you are familiar with Gary Vaynerchuk, he is very active on social media. Claude works side by side with Gary to create the culture at VaynerMedia, and she is just an amazing human being and, and resource. She shifted the agency's way of thinking and working to ensure she is unlocking greatness in people. At the end of the day, she really is a coach and a teacher and a facilitator and someone who cares deeply about fulfilling the people around her and helping them reach their potential. She lets go of the traditional HR methods and leans into human-to-human connection that has allowed Claude to disrupt the traditional approach to building culture and at VaynerMediate media. She has absolutely done that. And she is just somebody that I think is really at the forefront of developing humans in the corporate world. And I know you're going to love this conversation. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Claude Silver. Claude, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Super excited to chat with you. I've listened to you speak a number of times on podcasts and you were on a friend of both of ours, Cody Royal's podcast with Whitney Johnson. And I just love listening to that. And we both have an affinity for Cody. So we'll give Cody a quick shout out uh, right now. Um, actually, where I thought I'd start is different than where I thought we would start, which is around agility. Because over the last 15 or 20 minutes, I have had to use agility multiple times. So first off, there was drilling outside my office. So I had to move to my home office. And then I was struggling with getting do not disturb to work on my computer. So I know that agility is something that that you think about often. And I think about us being in a wicked time right now with COVID, with a lot of things going on in our country politically from a social justice standpoint. I would love to get your perspective on agility, emotional agility, and your just your general thoughts on it. Yeah, cool. Well, thanks for having me, Brian. Awesome to be here. Shout out to Cody. Um, yeah, you know, I think of agility like um, uh, fluidity. For me, you know, being nimble uh, and being able to pretty much shapeshift and turn on a dime is extremely important as a human being. I think that in order to do that emotionally, one must understand their emotions. And so self-awareness really comes into that. Otherwise, you'd really knock yourself, you know, you knock yourself over like a tsunami. So understanding that A, 99% of things don't matter. What is the 1% of things that matters in this moment? Let's take care of that. And let's take care of this. Because as you said, we've, you know, 2020 has given us a, you know, a load of uh, plagues, if you will. And um, we have all had to be in triage in one, you know, one way or the other. And think about triage, think about an emergency room doctor, you know, the, the, the amount of self-awareness that they need to have and confidence that they need to have, that they are making the right move to save your life is enormous. And they have to go from one patient to the next, to the next. Similarly for us, and certainly in what I do with 850 people, I need to be able to shuck and jive and shapeshift every single Zoom I'm on. It's very, very different. You know, we're dealing with human emotions. And so I need to make sure that I'm checking myself and I am present is enormously important. And I'm concentrating on what's important, what's in front of me rather than the noise that's in, in my mind, the noise that's in the background. Uh, going on at work or, you know, the next conversation I'm about to have. So staying present and really focusing on 
the 1% of things that we're trying to accomplish here. Everything else will fall into place. You mentioned doctors and I think of surgeons, and then you mentioned 800 people that you're responsible for in, in some way. How do doctors or yourself speak, maybe you could speak from your own perspective more than a doctor's, how do you not burn out? How do you, how do you stay present for people and be agile for people when that's a lot to bear? And I think of a lot of doctors who, who burn out and, and really struggle personally because they're so dedicated to their profession. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a phenomenal question. And I think it's a phenomenon in many ways. So uh, one, I love what I do. A doctor loves what they do or they wouldn't have done it. Right. But the, it's so intense to take on people's emotions. So I have had to, over the several, several years, learn how to protect my own energy. And in protecting my energy, it's not, hey, pushing you out. It's just making sure that I'm not taking all of yours on. Because if I take all of your stuff on, as an empathetic person myself, is that if I take all of you on, then I'm not able to help you. I can't even ride next to you. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm soaked. You know what I'm saying? And so having that kind of protection and making sure at the end of my day, regardless of what kind of day I've had, that I'm emptying my bucket in some way. And, you know, people ask me all the time, well, how do you not burn out? Okay. I have a 22 month old daughter, so I definitely can't burn out. And she gives me so much joy and oxytocin and I want to be with her. I love cooking. I listen to music and I exercise as much as I can. And by the way, I have to get up darn early to do all of that stuff. So it's, it's a prioritization in my life. It's a juggle. And because I'm loving what I do, my job is never going to be done. I'm dedicated to it. I'm devoted to the 850 people. I have to make sure that I, that I get myself right. So that's what, that's what I do. And, and, and in doing that, you know, that means like even the hard conversations I need to have, it's so much more important to have those conversations. To not go to sleep with that, oh God, I wish I would have talked to that one person. You know, to, to clear myself as much as I can. I almost think of the word selfish and how it, it often is seen as a negative connotation that I often struggle with how you can be in service to others if you don't take care of yourself first. What do you do to make sure that you're at your best. Is there anything intentional that you do to give yourself space and time to empty the bucket, as you were sort of saying, or to fill your, fill your cup? Yeah. I mean, the, the things I do outside of what I just mentioned in terms of, you know, exercise, walking, I do deep breathing exercises. I have a coach, you know, I've definitely worked with therapists in my life. Um, those types of professionals help me not only empty my bucket, but really understand my bucket. And either what's in it or why it's getting full and what I could, you know, what I can alleviate myself from. So I never say no to help or support. I'm also very stubborn. So it's very difficult for me to ask for support, uh, if you know what I'm saying. So uh, from others. So usually it's, it's easier if I'm like paying someone. Um, but, but the truth is, is, is if I'm not present and I know when I'm not present, I'm not going to be any good for anyone. And when I'm not, what I mean by that is if I'm not present, I'm not grounded. So what does Claude need to do to get grounded? Oftentimes it is going outside. It is literally canceling that next 15 minute meeting, taking a walk outside, putting headphones on, or just like just being outside and breathing. For me, 
is what I need to do. You know, how many times do we get to the end of the day and recognize that, God, I don't even know if I breathed, I took a breath today. You know, which is why I've, I've mentioned now breathing is so important for me and doing breathing, you know, just simple breathing techniques before I go to bed. As we're having this conversation, where I go to, as, as you mentioned, therapy is who, who are you and how did you become you? Mm-hmm. And in all the podcasts I listened to about you, I didn't get to your upbringing. <laughs> I didn't find out about who you are. And I went on to Instagram and checked out, it seems like there's an affinity for dad. Um, on there. So I found that out. But I'm curious to know what life was like for you as a kid, how you became you. um, And just talk about your childhood a bit. Love it. Well, I appreciate the question. Uh, I am uh, the oldest. My brother is 18 months younger than me. We are extremely tight, best friends. Uh, My parents are amazing. I love my mom and my dad equally. They, They raised us with incredible values and morals um, to respect our elders was a big, big one. Um, I I think we came out of the womb with manners. (laughs) By manners, I mean just knowing how to operate in in the world with human beings, uh, aside from table manners, which are very important as well. And, you know, at a very young age, I would say um, five is when I can first remember really being able to feel energy of people, you know, whether or not is that, that, a, is that a memory that you have, or is that like, how do you know it's five? Uh, well, it's funny enough. I know the person's name and I ended up running into her when I was at Rollins college when we were both 18. So I was like, I remember you. And I remember wanting to take care of you because I wow. saw her as like a, a more, I'll use the word, a fragile five-year-old. Uh, and I was, I was much more of a tomboy and running into her again at college was just remarkable because when do you ever get to do that? But that's so, when I really, it was so Claude, you're, you're five years old. You said you were a tomboy. Were you strong, confident? And she maybe, I think you said she, I don't know. Yeah. She, 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 she you said fragile. There was a desire to help her. What was mm-hmm. it? Can you just go into that? Cause I'm fascinated by that because of the work that you do now. Yeah. Um, I had a desire to protect her. That was my desire. Um, for whatever reason, whether or not it was what I saw as a fi- in five-year-old's eyes or what I felt, I, Claude, wanted to protect her and guide her. I wanted to be her guide. And I can remember that. I see it in my mind right now, just like it was yesterday. And you know, you asked, you just asked me a question if I was a confident kid. I was confident up until a certain point in my life, uh, which was probably around eight. And at eight, not only did I get glasses, but I I started to um, not do well academically. I started to get tutored at a very young age and it turned out I was dyslexic. And so my ability to learn is very, was very different than the normal second and third graders. You know, my, my ability to retain information and take, I think it was the ERB test or whatever those are, you know, um, was different. And remember, I have an 18-month-old, uh, 18-month younger brother. And so all throughout school, we were compared quite a bit, um, which is, I think, quite damaging to kids. So while I was confident in my inner pilot light, and that is something that's always been with me, 
uh, I struggled. I started to struggle with school at a very early age. Now, my mom was a elementary school teacher uh, up until a certain point, and then she became a psychotherapist, a family therapist. And my dad's always been a venture capitalist entrepreneur. So I was around very strong, confident, very well-educated parents. I mean, we used to read poetry at dinner table, which was wonderful, you know, and, and we had a very kind of Renaissance type of life. Um, I was um, just, you know, I had everything I could want and more. Um, but what ended up happening, and actually I don't even mean but, however, what ended up happening is I went into sports very early. My parents also handed me a tennis racket as they went onto the golf course and they said, your tennis lesson is going to be down there. I'm sure I cried. And, um, and my career as an amateur tennis player took off until I kind of chucked that in the, in the toilet later on in my late adolescence. Um, we moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico when I was 12. Thank God it wasn't any later because I think that would have been disastrous. So I was going into seventh grade. The wonderful thing about that move was a, I, I, you know, Santa Fe is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And so I started out in Manhattan where there's tall skyscrapers and all of a sudden I start, I started to see landscapes and vistas and the, the sunset every single day. And I had access to the great outdoors. I also went to a very small prep school. Um, the classes were very small. Um, I'm a, I'm a friendly person. I made friends very easily. And while school was still incredibly difficult for me, I think the smallness of the classroom provided uh, an easier way for me to um, learn and understand. I mean, the teachers understood that I learned differently because I, other people learned differently. So anyway, um, but school academics was just tough. It was just really, really tough for me. And um, they, but they, 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 accepted some of the learning challenges and guided you because sometimes those private schools it's sort of sink or swim but it sounds like they they helped you learn or, or what was that process like for you from an academic standpoint in some ways they helped me learn you know i certainly gravitated to to more of the humanities english and, and history classes and so i excelled there um, I took algebra three times the last time i took algebra one was as a senior so i was sitting there with ninth graders which was it wasn't even humbling. I felt shame. So, you know, shame is a, a big thing I've carried with me um, through life, through certain circumstances I found myself in, I got myself into. And it took me a long time, well into my probably uh, early 40s, late 30s, early 40s, to shed my shame and to really come to peace with it and to... Um, and to start really, I think, you know, healing from it, but understanding the root of it. Uh, I think shame is a killer. It's one thing that I, uh, I'm setting out to, to really uh, help people shed their shame. And that takes a lot of understanding and a, and a, a wherewithal to really dig deep and understand what the heck you're all about and why you make those decisions. So, you know, I did a big jump with you just then, but, you know, from adolescence, uh, where I started to dabble with drugs and, and really started to kind of like leave myself with very little options in life. Um, you know, up until my late twenties was a real, you know, it was a really, um, there was some chaos in my life there at a, at a very early age. And then there was a, a cooling off a time in which I started to dive deep into spirituality, psychology, 
uh, intuition, clairvoyancy. And that's where I started to learn much more about myself, much more about the intuition that I had, which by the way, a lot of dyslexics are highly intuitive because we learn to feel. We, we figure out that, okay, the normal way of learning isn't really going to work. I'm not a linear learner by any means. And uh, so I feel my way through life. Um, but anyway, those, those um, classes and those, the, you know, the, the universities and um, places I went to have this kind of alternative education were extremely helpful for me and got me, I would say, much more you know, back on my feet, but it's not even back on my feet. They just like, they helped me become an adult in this world because in some ways I wasn't prepared because I chucked it all away. I think I thought that, you know, my parents would always be there, which by the way, they are there emotionally, but I, I think I always thought that financially they'd always be there for me. No. And uh, I found myself, you know, not I didn't graduate from college until I was 28. And in those times, I mean, I'm a Gen Xer. You really needed a college education to get a decent job. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I think life started in many ways at 28. Life started again for me at 30 and 35 and 40. What, what was the spiritual framework as far as growing up? Was there a religion? And, uh, and I'd be curious how you think about faith and, and spirituality today, if they're intertwined, if they're different. I know it's different for everybody. Yeah. Uh, Jewish. So I was, I was brought up um, in a, a Jewish household, um, you know, culturally Jewish, but obviously Russia, as we're on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, it's something that we observed in Yom Kippur and, uh, and certainly Hanukkah. Um, I, I love that I have that in my veins. I love that I I love my Jewish heritage, if you will. Um, I also, you know, really believe in Buddhist teachings and Hindu teachings. Um, I believe in the teachings of Christ. I mean, these are all things that I, I see as spirituality, not religion for me. Um, I believe in universal love. I mean, that's really my spirituality. And um, acceptance and acceptance of suffering in this world um, and then letting it go is really something that is key for me. And that I believe comes from a lot of um, Eastern spirituality. So, you know, faith is, I, I, you know, I pray every night. I do my own prayer every night, every single night, since I was probably around eight, seven or eight, same prayer, real basic. And it helps ground me. My Nana, who I talk a lot about, uh, was my best friend. She died at 101 about uh, three and a half years ago. And, you know, she was really my guiding light. Um, just she was my person. And she actually is the one that taught me this prayer a long, long time ago. So I feel like I have guardian angels around me every day. I really do. I see, I see things, I feel things, and I know that I am um, uh, protected. I'm Jewish as well. And there is fear in the Jewish culture that the religion will go away. Um, they are constantly coming out with statistics that, you know, Jews are becoming less Jewish. And obviously the Holocaust is a backdrop and persecution for all of eternity. I'm curious what your Nana, Nana's reaction would be to the answer that you just gave as it relates to your relationship with spirituality and religion? Oh, she'd shake her head. Yes, I get it. That's, that's who we are, Claude. 
you know, we didn't even call ourselves names. We called each other heart. Oh, how cool is that? It's amazing. And then I, you know, my title is chief heart officer. My Nana got me in, in such a way that I don't think I'll, I'll ever be gotten other than by the universe. Uh, so she was a very spiritual being, very, very spiritual being. And, um, and so, so is my mom also. Uh, so, you know, funny enough, I, I have a, um, a daughter that's about to become two years old and we named her Shalom. Uh, we named her Shalom because we wanted a very strong, we, we wanted an S first and foremost. And, and as you know, in, in the Jewish tradition, usually we name our children from the, you know, the, the person that departed most recently. And uh, Shalom is peace. And we wanted her to bring peace to this world. And she's a firecracker and she will. And we will raise her uh, in, in a Jewish household. And we will also give her wings to explore whatever she wants to explore. It's interesting. My grandpa, Max, who everyone growing up said that I look like and reminded them of, he passed away last year and he lived 95 amazing years. He had a heart attack at some point, but survived that and really was with it, like way smarter than I'll ever be, way wiser than I'll ever be. And we used to grab lunch together and just chat. And I remember talking to him about religion and I said, oh, grandpa, like, how'd you decide what synagogue you went to? And how do you think about faith? And he's like, ah, we just picked like the closest synagogue, <laughs> you know, and yeah, we just went there. We, we probably were more reformed than we were conservative, but we went to the conservative synagogue. But, you know, his wife was a Holocaust survivor who mm -hmm. had two brothers get killed and uh, is a big part of our family's story as well. And but that struck me because we always think that like generations of generations before us did something and they were so, you know, clear on these complicated things like religion. Um, but it was interesting to hear him say in his 90s that he's like, yeah, I'm not really sure what I believe, but it's important to support Israel. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> like these, these ideas, it's important to celebrate the holidays, the traditions. And my grandma, I think, felt the same way. Um, so as I hear you talk about your Nana, I had a a similar affinity for my grandpa. And uh, I think there's something to skipping the generation and having a relationship with your grandparent that's different than your parents, yeah. for those of us that are fortunate and lucky enough to do that. Um, as you're going through this process in your 20s, um, what was your parents' response and reaction? So it sounds like maybe did you drop out of college? Did you ever go to college? You said you went back and finished it when you were 28. Mm -hmm. They were well-educated. Uh, mm -hmm. What was their response to you maybe having a little bit of a revolt or uh, yes. rebellion or whatever <laughs> word you want to choose? That's a great, great question. Uh, I left Rollins after my sophomore year. School was, it just wasn't clicking. And I was, um, you know, still dabbling quite a bit in drugs and it just wasn't a priority for me. I had also kind of started to chuck my tennis career then as well. So did you so, play, did you play at Rollins? Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you like it when you were playing at that point? No, no. I stopped liking tennis very early because I recognized, I don't think I ever played for myself. Um, I'm, I am a competitive person when it comes to certain things, but I am not a competitive person on the court. And, you know, now I love hitting balls, but I do not like playing games and people always want to play games with me. And I don't, I just don't, I don't enjoy Claude playing tennis games matches. I just don't. 
but you know, I will happily race you down a hill on a snowboard happily, you know? So it's very different. It's very, very different. Um, but I do love tennis. I love golf. Um, so I, I went and started to dabble with different courses here and there, whether or not it was uh, Russian literature or Russian history it was very interesting to me. I was living in Florida for a while. I went to Prescott College in Arizona, which is a phenomenal uh, um, alternative education, if you will, um, uh, which I think is terrific. And Prescott is really what turned me on to uh, positive psychology. I did a lot of um, uh, work within codependency and uh, uh, addiction and codependency, I should say. Um, and I, in women's studies, and, it, you know, I, I, I skipped a beat here, Brian. When I left Rollins, I told my parents that I needed to find the longest outward bound course because I needed to get my ass kicked, quote, unquote. How were you aware of that? How, oh, how did you realize that? I was going nowhere fast. I didn't have, I really, I didn't have any options for myself. I didn't, I wasn't prepared to leave, literally to leave high school or to go to college. At 18, I literally should have put a backpack on and traveled and I didn't. I went into Rollins. I was on the waiting list. You know what I mean? Like I just wasn't prepared. Um, so, uh, and and I was I wasn't going anywhere. I was going, you know, uh, there was a slippery slope in front of me and I was wise enough to know that this was a kid that was not going to end up in rehab. No offense to anyone in rehab. I wasn't going to go that route. And, um, and I needed confidence. I needed my confidence back. So I found a 93 day wilderness leadership program and, uh, and off I went. 93 days carrying 80 pounds on my back, just like the guys. I was one young woman and there were nine young men and we were together for 93 days. Um, within that 93 days, the um, Loma Linda earthquake in San Francisco happened, which I saw live on TV as I was, um, we were doing resupply that day at Outward Bound and we were in Leadville, Colorado, getting, you know, washing our hair and in a hotel room and watched it happen on the on the screen, which was really incredibly scary, being that I had already been in the wilderness and kind of outside and outside of the world for a while. Um, that was a really pivotal point in my life. And when I knew that I needed to stop being kind of a selfish victim, if you will, and start to make positive choices for myself and be of service. And that's really the first time I heard the word servant leadership was on Outward Bound, which, which really was a transformational experience for me. It sounds, so, like a, sounds like a watershed moment that, mm -hmm. or watershed experience. Sometimes we say watershed moment, watershed experience. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was my first watershed experience. I've had a, a few others in life, but that was a, a fundamentally an eye-opener. And um, uh, so then I went to Prescott College after that, uh, and then I found myself dabbling in a couple other universities in San Francisco. And then I found my home at a, a place called CIIS in San Francisco, California Institute of Integral Studies. And, um, you know, to answer your question, yes, my parents said to me over and over and over and over, get accredited, get the document, you know, get the piece of paper, get the diploma, like, you know, Claude, you're going to need that in this world. And I didn't want to, I really didn't want to listen to them. 
I really, really didn't. And my best friend, still my best friend, uh, Gail Tifford said to me, just go and get the piece of paper and be done with it. And so I did, and I had a wonderful time at CIIS. I got a, a great education in transpersonal um, positive psychology, Joseph Campbell, and life really took off after that. Getting that piece of paper, and it was 1997, 1998, um, opened up every single door. And I was in San Francisco, and the dot-com boom was happening. And so there was a really nice, you know, kind of a synergy there that happened for me, and my career started. So, Claude, fast forward 20 20- two years. We'll come, we can, we can fill in the dots, but I'm interested because I heard you on a podcast say that at, at Vayner, you all don't care if somebody has a piece of paper or not right. as it relates to their education. And That's I'm right. conflicted on this. And I just had a conversation with a really bright, well-educated African-American man. And his, his company actually trains people that either have their GED or graduate from high school and then don't want to go on to traditional college and helps them get skills and training so that they can go and, and have a, a well-paying job. I said to him, it's, it's, it's confusing because today a lot of us are saying, you don't need the degree, go learn a skill, go learn a trade, trade and, and don't put yourself in debt. And, and there, there are downsides to college. But my concern is also that we are going to misconstrue that or the next generation will misconstrue that as don't, don't get education or don't value education or don't value learning. And so I, I'm really conflicted on how to think about this. So I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on just formal education, the role it plays, the value it has in our society. So I think formal education is phenomenal for the right reasons, and that is to educate oneself because of your curiosity um, and you want to learn. I don't think formal education is productive to get the piece of paper uh, or to have bragging rights or to feel shitty about yourself. So you can have bragging rights because you went to one of the big or you you went to a community college. If you want to better yourself and expand your brain, your heart, your mind, your body and learn, something you're interested in learning, not something that is forced upon you, God bless, do it. And that's the luxury I had, you know, unbeknownst to my parents, I was able to dabble. Algebra wasn't going to do me any good in life. And by the way, I'm 51 years old. It still has never been used in my life. So me sitting in that algebra class as a senior with those ninth graders didn't do me any good. And so I shouldn't have had to take it, you know, and that's high school. And for, you know, it's a little bit different. I took the SATs three times untimed and still I got 1040, you know, so there's something to be said about forcing these things, trying to force fit a human being into um, a compartment in which they just don't fit. So yes, go to school if you want to learn and expand your mind and you want to be curious and you want to be inspired. By all means, go play, get busy, get dirty, do it. And I think it, I think where it gets deeper and harder and more confusing is you came from a privileged situation where um, yeah. you could explore and I, me as myself as well, my parents are educated. I think it gets interesting where you have the generation where maybe their parents weren't educated and they're doing blue collar jobs in order to try to provide their kids an opportunity to go to college so that they can have a different life. And then like 
this is where I'm, I'm just not sure of the messaging uh, for our society. We, to, and from my perspective, there's been a devaluing of a college degree just societally. And I wonder and I'm concerned about that in maybe underserved communities because I do still believe that the best way to put yourself in a better position is education. Um, but I don't agree that all education is learning um, and there's lots of ways to learn outside of education. So I am, I'm still trying to suss all this out and tease all it out. I, I'm kind of, we could talk about spirituality as well because I'm also trying to suss that out and, and tease that out for myself. But um, I don't know, you have any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I do. I think, I wish that every single person, no matter where they come from, could go on an Outward Bound course because mm -hmm. I think that in itself gives you so much courage and confidence and you will shed skin like nobody's business and it will normalize the playing field because if i'm carrying 80 pounds brian's carrying 80 pounds you know those first two weeks when we would get you know we would be hiking you know climbing a thousand fifteen hundred feet in a day in the snow and it's just crazy and we'd get to this place where we had to all of a sudden set up tarps and cook dinner and stay warm because we'd get hypothermia and the guys thought i was going to be cooking dinner you know, because, it, you know, that's just the norm, right? No, it flattens the field. So yes, we want to make sure that every single person not only has um, equality, but equity, you know, just people, every single person deserves an at-bat in life and a fair at-bat in life. And so if that piece of paper is going to get them that at-bat, sure, then I'm in favor of it. But if that piece of paper is going to devalue them or help them devalue themselves, then I'm not in favor of it. I think I went and saw a documentary. It was, called, it was about city kids. And I think it takes kids from DC inner city and takes them outdoors and they climb mountains and they do all this stuff. It was profound. I'm going to look that up and maybe I'll send you the documentary. Yeah, please. It was, it was really powerful. All right. So you realize, Hey, I'm an empath. I love helping people. Um, I want to just, I know we're skipping steps here, but I do want to riff with you a little on, on human resources and where we're at today and where we may be going. And so you, you call yourself a chief heart officer. You talked about Nana and a heart and, and that being at the core of who you are. Where do you see human resources going? Well, like, yeah. I, I think we're at a really interesting time. And I think what you all are doing is, is pretty badass. Uh, talk about how you all think about human resources, how you think about it for yourself and where you think it'll be maybe five, 10 years from now. Yeah. So I am, uh, I, I'm a proud human resources professional now. I never thought I would be, you know, I was, I was on the floor of agencies for a very long time as a strategist. Uh, I am doing what seems very common sense to me in terms of taking care of people. You know, we've already talked about the fact that I, I am an empath. I did Outward Bound where you are working as a team. You're a team or you're nothing. You know, whether or not I was playing tennis or playing soccer, I was the team captain. You know, I've coached tennis. Uh, so, so for me, I see the art, the heart, and the science of coaching as HR. That's what I see. I don't think, I really swear to you, I do not think 98% of people get into the human resources field because they just want to tick boxes and be compliant uh, officers and offer benefits all day. I think they want to be helpful to people. 
and that has gotten lost. We are coaches, educators, guides. We are to be Switzerland, protecting the company and protecting the individual. I don't even like to use the word protecting because that to me connotates that there needs to be protection, but you know, yes, we live in the world that we live in. So um, I see, that's where I see us being educators, facilitators of growth and change of learning and development, you know, not as in you're in trouble, you're going to the principal's office. And that is the massive shift we need. And in order to do that, we need to be training and teaching people the fine art of empathy, how to be more emotionally intelligent, how to access your emotional intelligence, how to bring more humility into the working world, how to have more gratitude, you know, how to be more mindful of other people, how to hold space, how to be non-judgmental. These are things that I do think we need to be pouring into HR departments. And by the way, leadership departments, C-suite departments, everyone needs it. Any single person that is in the business of taking care of people needs this. And so for me, that seems like the entire world, but we'll just start with HR departments and leadership. Uh, and you can't do it alone. You know, not everyone is going to be, is going to wake up at five years old and be like, wow, I think I'm really empathic and I can feel things. You know, I, like I said, we, we talked about, I saw that, you know, I, I knew I had that skill of feeling people, but boy, oh boy, I had, I didn't have all of those other left brain skills that are really like, you know, needed in the world. What's needed in the world is creating safety. What's needed in the world is holding space for people, treating people equally, you know, not judging people because of the color of their skin, who they vote for, or who they go to bed with. That's what's needed in the world. And that is the job of leaders. That is the job of HR people. Psychological safety listening. This is what is needed today, tomorrow, and until I take my last breath. I got chills and a little emotional as I hear you, you say that. It's inspiring. So how do, how do you all do it? You said 800 people. Um, walk us through how you do it. Yeah, we are such a high-touch culture. I talk to every single person. Gary talks to every single person. The great thing about being on Zoom, and by the way, there's great things and there's not great things about being on Zoom, is that I'm able to do this at scale now. I can see 15 people on one screen and I can start to feel the texture of the culture just as easily as I can look at one person on screen and feel the texture of the culture. And I'm having conversations that would blow your mind because they are not just about growth and development. They're about poetry. They're about, you know, Jack or Jill coming on screen and telling me they're depressed, you know, or they're burnt out or um, they cannot be on screen because of the murder of George Floyd and they are just bereft, you know, or they got engaged. So having enough context data, again, the texture of each and every individual allows me to also see patterns. And when I see patterns, again, I have had to learn this as a dyslexic. This is my secret sauce rather than being great at, at, at creating um, uh, formulas in Excel. You know, being able to see patterns allows me to understand a little bit more what is happening in totality in the culture of, you know, one pod, one floor, one office. 
So Gary and I are incredibly high touch. We're spending a lot of time with people. My entire team is doing the same thing of HR business partners. We are doing a lot of training with our leadership now. Every single leader is getting one-on-one professional coaching with a group uh, called the Handel Group, which are phenomenal um, uh, professional coaches, career coaches. And, um, and we've offered that uh, an online service to every employee where they can do their own coaching through uh, a platform called InnerU. Um, and we have these courageous conversations now with people around uh, DE&I. You know, so how we do it is we are intentional about every single thing we do. When I leave this podcast with you and I get on to my next 15-minute call with whomever's going to be there, it is all about them. How are you doing? What's going on? How are you feeling? Have you taken any time off? What are the wins? You know, whatever. I'm going to take the conversation wherever it feels like it needs to be taken at scale. I do this over and over and over, as well as I'm, you know, looking at, data and I'm, I'm looking at resourcing and it's, you know, it's, it's um, review time and looking at, you know, 360 peer reviews and making sure we're being as objective as possible. So um, on and on. It's amazing. Why do you think human resources has leaned more towards compliance than development over the years? Well, I think two reasons. I think one, these big corporations needed some kind of protection because they were not paying enough attention to their people. I really do. I think, they are, I think they have been fear-based. They are uh, concentrated on the bottom and top line. They report to uh, their shareholders. Uh, right there, I think it, it um, takes away a level of humanity that is needed in the workplace. Fear is, fear is a killer. Shame is a killer, right? And so when you go into work or you have the Sunday scaries, and you feel like shit about going in because you're afraid of something like that right there signals to you something is wrong. <laughs> Something's fundamentally wrong. And you want to check in with yourself and see what's wrong. And then you want to see if you're in the right place. But back to your initial question, look, we're an independently owned company. Our CEO is an empath. He is, a, he is full of humanity he is the first to raise his hand and say, I changed my time. My, I'm changed my, I'm a malleable person. You know, I don't know any other CEO that gets up in front of a company and says that, you know, that really wants to pay attention to their people. So the fear, the fact that, you know, people do put companies do put profit before people that's right. there going to take away and strip away a level of care. You know, how hard are you working? Why aren't you working harder? 15 hours isn't enough. Um, and, and I also just think that, you know, you asked me the question about HR. I, I, I think that HR lost its way. I think at some point, you know, the, the role became, you know, a scapegoat in so many ways for kind of like the dark side of what goes on. It's interesting that you mentioned the principal's office earlier, because I think of a principal as the CEO of a school. And the fact that going to the principal's office is a bad thing, even starting there is the wrong message. Like, why is it that going to the principal's office only happens when something bad happens? It's kind of like we should only go get, go to therapy or go to a psychologist when something bad is happening. Whereas if you take the positive psychology approach, which is what do you look like when you're at your best? How do we make that more consistent? How do we have you thrive? It doesn't have to all be about suffering. I'm even thinking about principals 
And I had an amazing principal on the podcast named Hamish Brewer, who rides a skateboard through the hallways, like spray paints the walls. And he brings a culture and an energy to every school he goes to and turns it around. And this, you and I both would have had good grades probably if we went there. I wasn't a high achiever in school either. Um, and I, I do wonder if even we could start there, if we could start changing the narrative around um, when you are having to go to a person of authority, it shouldn't always be bad. Even our police system, like yeah. you, you could take this in so many directions because it's reflective in, in, in so many areas of our culture. Um, I, you know, I, let's, I, we, you and I could spend five hours probably talking about the police force, but let's just take one thing. We oftentimes we want to go to the law enforcement or we go to doctors because we want help. We want help. We want information that we don't have access to. And the fact that the police force has become, you know, to serve and protect. I like the serve part a lot more than I like the protect part. The protect part says right there, you are going to need protection. Now, look, we know what goes on in life and we do need protection. And in our next life, when you and I are reincarnated in the next, you know, zillion years, hopefully we, we live in a world that doesn't. And there's tenderness. But that's not where we are today. But, you know, when you go to a doctor because you want to know what's going on internally. And oftentimes you're given either, either incorrect information, jumbled information, which you can't even understand, sent off on a, on a load of tests which what do they do? They just scare the heck out of you. You know, you will never go and get a mammogram, but, you know, talk to people that have gotten a mammogram and find out how scary that is, you know, and then waiting for that report to come in, not even being under, uh, able to understand it. So, you know, that's, I'm, get, I'm getting off topic here, but the serve part is the part that we need to magnify here. And those of us that want to be in service and are raising our hands, like, let us do our job. We want to be in service, man. You, Claude, you mentioned Gary Vaynerchuk, who's the CEO and, and started the company. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask a question about him. And I would assume a lot of people on this podcast will know about him, but some may not. But I can't think of a more social media public figure than him as a CEO. One of the things that really intrigues me about him is that he does not involve his kids in social media. And yeah. he keeps that part of his life private. And someone who seems to put everything out there and has made the decision that I'm going to keep my kids private. And I want to get your thoughts on this because I, as I went on your Instagram, I saw your daughter on, on Instagram. And I recently posted a picture with me and my kids holding my new book up. And for a long time, I, I had my, my name private on Instagram and I would post pictures of my kids because I knew my mom wanted to see pictures mm -hmm. of my kids and she could go to Instagram, cool. But I really struggle with this idea of privacy, especially as it relates to my kids because they're not choosing who their dad is and what their dad's journey is. And I grew up with a very successful dad who was very private for a long time that was more public. And it, it impacts you. Like those decisions that your parents make impacts you and in, in how you show up in the world. And so I'd be curious to get your perspective on Gary making that decision to have his stuff private and then your decision 
because you're now stepping into a much more in the last few years public role mm-hmm. as your arm in arm with Gary and you're mm-hmm. doing podcasts with me. Yep. How do you think about privacy as it relates to your family and your personal life? So first and foremost, I, I love the fact that Gary keeps his family life private. I think that it is a phenomenal oxymoron. And uh, for someone that is so public, no one needs to know about his private life. I think that's, I think let, you know, he's so public. And I appreciate the fact that he draws a very firm line in the sand. Uh, to me, I respect him for a lot of reasons. There are things he says, everybody probably says, oh, there's things I like about him. Then there's things I think he's wrong at. Cause he's putting, when you put so much content out, you're going to say some dumb shit sometimes. I've said dumb shit on this podcast and I'm not broadcasting nearly as much as he is. But when he, when he shared that for me, that was when I talk about respect, you can be smart, you can be witty, he can be, you know, build this empire, all that. I, that's cool. But when he said that, that was where I actually was like, oh, I respect that because that is an intentional decision that's in service. It's in yeah. service to, to yeah. his, his family. To his family. Yeah. yeah. If, there's, if there's one thing he is, is intentional, you know, truthful and intentional. Um, for me, you know, I am social. I am out there. Shalom won't always be on my social probably, you know, within a year or so, we won't have her there anymore. But she's been a part of my journey that I've been very vocal about. Just like coming out, you know, look, I mean, I've been, I've been out since I was 22. But, you know, I don't hide the, I don't hide uh, my sexuality at all. Uh, I don't want to hide part, I don't want, I, I just don't want to. There's nothing for me to protect at this moment that I don't feel like I can protect myself. I think that's, that's the name of the game, where I am. Uh, and at some point, you know, there might be haters out there and we'll take care of it as it is. But right now, um, this is a, this is a huge part of my joy and an enormous uh, injection into my day. And, um, it's something I want to share. I'm proud of. As, as I think about this conversation, as we start to wind down, there's this polarity of service and protection when you talked about the police. Yeah, that's very true. You talked about uh, going to our bound and realizing that my role is to serve. Um, and I think a lot of times we think that in order to serve, we do have to protect, we have to shield, we have to guard. And you just said something that's so empowering, which is because I'm in service, I no longer have to protect. I, I, I like, And I even am using my body to move backwards. Yeah. Yeah. And what a beautiful place as a society we could get to if everyone was in service. To your point, bad things happen and bad people do bad things and it's a reality. And so I'm not someone who says we're in a utopian society. Like yep. bad shit happens. And um, But I do love the idea, the best way to get out of depression or some sort of negative Right. Even during COVID, um, when I've been working with people, we often talk about what ways can you serve others if you are okay? Like if you're in yes. a position where yes. you are safe and secure, because we do have to take care of ourselves first. But then if we're okay, hey, you're looking for more fulfillment, more motivation, whatever it might be. It's often about helping other people that gives us that, that, that in- internal drive. Right. And I think the internal drive is the internal voice. Pay attention to it, you know? And by the way, not only pay attention to it, we need to be feeding it and fostering it and taking care of the weeds and, uh, and making sure that this is right 
this is where I need it to be. Well, no one else needs it to be where I need it to be in order for me to do what it is I love doing every single day. And as you even said that you, your posture went up, yeah. you went, you yeah. grounded your, you could see the grounding and you started this conversation by talking about being present and being grounded. And then from that place, you can be in service to others. The last thing I want to riff on with you is this idea of soft skills. And we talked yeah. about it before we started recording and unfortunately it's the last thing we'll, we'll hopefully have a, we'll a get another com conversation. Yeah. We'll do another one. Cause there's a lot to unpack, yeah. but Soft skills. So I told you before we started recording, our company is called Strong Skills. And really our mission is to transform how organizations think about these skills. How do you think about strong skills? <laughs> what do we need to do to change the narrative? And, and literally, could, we both have a little bit of a sports background. If you're soft in sports, you're getting cut from the team. Like you're, you're getting benched if you're soft. And when we say that term, for competitive people, it, it is weakness. It is um, not important, not valuable. So our organization, like our mission is to try to get people to think about these skills as actually things that make you strong. This is what's going to allow you to take care of yourself during a rough time like COVID, have the adversity, resilience, whatever it might be. What do we need to be doing to try to get this world to change maybe how they're viewing human resources and maybe shift to the heart and change how they're thinking about these skills and not thinking about them soft and maybe thinking about them as strong. So I love, the, I love the term strong skills. That's, you know, what I've been using lately is necessary life skills or life skills. Strong skills are phenomenal because hard, strong, it actually is the same exact thing. They're just different. I, I was asked to go speak at the Air Force a couple of years ago, and uh, they wanted me to speak about emotional intelligence and empathy. I went to West Point and did the same conversation. I mean, we're talking about soldiers. We're talking about people that are, are in service to our country and giving their life, and they're learning about strong skills. So, I mean, yeah, you and I can talk about a football player, and we can talk about a tennis player, and we can talk about a hockey player. But let's talk about these people that are serving us and they are learning these skills right there. If we're not paying attention to that, then you might as well just shut down. You know, like go home. Strong, the, the, the word soft skills all of a sudden demotes yourself to a weakling. And we're just not, you know, it's the way, like I think about when you said strong skills, the image I got in my head was like a Muhammad Ali. That's who I actually got in my head, a boxer. And don't think the boxer doesn't have to have self-awareness and understanding and knowing how to, you know, be a champion with grace and humility. Yeah, of course he said, you know, fly like a butterfly, sting like a bee, but he was a human being. He gave his life in service of what he, you know, his religion and his, and his faith. I mean, just... And our country and Vietnam. And I mean, he, yeah. he, when he's yes. in the arena, when he's in the ring, he's going to be arrogant. He's going to say he's the greatest even before he believes he is. Like who you are in the arena and you're performing, it's not, doesn't have to be the same person and what you care about outside of the arena. Um, and, and that's okay. Um, Claude, I'd love to give you a megaphone to just promote anything that you think deserves promoting, uh, whether it's your social media handles, oh nonprofit that you're passionate about, what you all are doing at VaynerMedia. Um, I just want to give you a platform to just Thank you. shout from the hilltops and promote anything you want. 
I appreciate it so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. I can't wait to jam with you next time. Um, please find me on, on Insta, LinkedIn, on Twitter. Um, I'm happy to jam with anyone. I get back to everyone that writes me. Uh, I want us to really think about what it's like for people today to still be in captivity, whether or not that is their own personal captivity, uh, domestic violence, captivity, uh, any type of imprisonment. And I want us to help find keys for them, help them find their own keys. But really for those people that don't have voices, it is our job to help them find their voices and help them find their island of safety. I'm devoted to that. That's beautiful. I'm on social as well at Brian Levinson. We'll put Claude's uh, social media handles in the show notes. Uh, and my book, Shift Your Mind, is out now. So hopefully you will enjoy that. Claude, thanks for the time. Appreciate you. Appreciate all the work you're doing. And let's go shift how the world sees uh, human resources and these, these inner skills. And I uh, can't wait to chat with you in the future. Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. What's needed in the world is holding space for people, treating people equally, you know, not judging people because of the color of their skin, who they vote for, or who they go to bed with. That's what's needed in the world. And that is the job of leaders. That is the job of HR people. Psychological safety listening. This is what is needed today, tomorrow, and until I take my last breath.